listening to Books Are My People, a bi-weekly podcast for book lovers with book news, book recommendations, and ruminations on living a literary life in Los Angeles. This is episode 16. My name is Jennifer Calieris, and I am the author of three books and a writing instructor at UCLA Extension's Writers Program, and I am recording on Wednesday, January 29th. I feel like a lot could happen in the book world between now and when this airs in almost two weeks. I do have a little chicken update for those of you tuning in for the first time. We hatched chickens with my kids in an incubator last May, and now we are finally reaping the benefits of pet chickens and we're getting lots of eggs. So finally, after eight months, all seven of our chickens are laying eggs. The last holdout was our cream leg bar, Gilda, and she finally laid a blue egg the other day. So lots of omelets, souffles, baked goods, and high cholesterol in our future. All of the baking works out nicely because my family is still obsessed with the Great British Bake Off. My boys named their new pygmy hamsters, Prue and Paul, after the judges on the show. I'm going to be doing a bit of traveling in February. I think I'll be gone for a total of 10 days, and hopefully that will mean some extra time to read and maybe my first show on the road. And just a quick plug for my side hustle, in addition to writing books and teaching writing at UCLA, I also do editing work for writers. So if you have a manuscript or a short story lying around and you're ready to have some eyes on it and get advice or feedback or direction, send me an email at booksaremypeople at gmail.com. Tell me a little bit about your project and we can discuss further. I am currently finishing up editing a 600-page manuscript for a client, so I do have some open time uh, in late February, early March. I am so excited to introduce you to our guest today, but first, some bookish news. Marta Kaufman, the creator of Friends, is developing a TV series based on the acclaimed novel The Dreamers, by Karen Thompson Walker. The book is about an ordinary town that is transformed by a mysterious illness that triggers perpetual sleep. Walker is also the author of The Age of Miracles. I was, of course, thrilled to learn that my guilty pleasure Netflix show, You, has been renewed for a third season. I am so excited, even though I know I'm going to have to wait a while. My podcast is way too short to do justice to the American Dirt controversy, but I did want to speak about it a little bit. American Dirt is a novel written by Janine Cummins, and it had a lot of momentum behind it, including a seven-figure bidding war, movie rights before the book was even published, and it was also selected by Oprah for her book club. However, as reviewers began to receive their copies ahead of time, Ahead of publication, some readers objected to the way Cummins had handled the migrant experience, which has ultimately led to an even larger discussion about own voices and who gets to tell another community story. And what is it exactly about this book that is so emblematic of problems in the publishing world writ large? As I mentioned, the format of my podcast is just too short to do any real justice to a nuanced discussion 
of all of these important ideas, but I did recently listen to NPR's podcast 1A, which did such a fantastic job explaining the controversy and interviewing various people both inside and outside of publishing. And I'm going to leave a link in the show notes to this particular episode. And if you are curious about uh, American Dirt and what all the hubbub is, definitely have a listen. It's very comprehensive and I just learned so much. If you're searching for the episode, it is called What the Controversy Over American Dirt Tells Us About Publishing and Authorship. So today I am very happy to welcome a guest author to the show. Colette Sartor is here with us. Colette is a writer and she also teaches writing at UCLA Extensions Writers Program and at Los Angeles Writers House. She is the co-host of the Literary Roadhouse Book Club podcast. Her short fiction collection, Once Removed, was published in 2019 and won the Flannery O'Connor Award for short fiction. And her stories and essays have appeared in a variety of papers and magazines, including the Chicago Tribune, the Los Angeles Times, and Carve Magazine. And her website, ColetteSartor.com, is just so darn good looking. So welcome, Colette, and thanks so much for being here today. Episodes this morning to catch up uh, of Books Are My People, and you're just such a joy. Oh, thank you. (laughs) I've decided I must listen to you every morning because you cheer me up and you give me great ideas for books that I want to read. Oh, excellent. Well, I just loved your story so much. Colette was so generous and sent me a copy of her short fiction collection, and it is just so incredible. I loved it. Your stories hit that sweet spot where dark humor and pathos intersect, and there's such an intimacy to the women that you write about. As a reader, I felt so privileged to have had a glimpse into their lives. Oh, thank you. In one, a woman who has lost twins rents their nursery to a local college student who becomes a sort of surrogate child. And in another, a pregnant public defender keeps discovering mutilated cats. And in that one, there's (laughs) there's particularly such a great juxtaposition between life and death in that story. I just loved it. And in another, a singer who has lost her voice becomes friends with a silent child. There's a lot of beautiful push and pull within the pages of these stories. I feel like short stories are the special unicorn of fiction writing, and I'm curious about how they came together in such a cohesive collection. I've been saying this repeatedly, and I've actually, in a few of my the classes I've taught at UCLA Extension uh, in advanced short story writing, I have said, uh, do as I say, not as I did. <laughs> Because I didn't set out to write short stories in order to write a collection. I, after graduate school, I had written an abysmal or part of an abysmal novel in graduate school. And I really felt like I had to start writing short stories again to learn how to tell a good story. I got hooked But unfortunately, I didn't get hooked in the way that I now recommend to my students. I didn't start exploring well wow, I'm really interested in this character or that character because, you know, especially recently, there are a lot of novels out there that are actually short story collections. Like there's a wonderful, fabulous novel called Disappearing Earth by Julia Phillips, I believe. And it starts out with the disappearance of two 
two sisters, two children. And then each subsequent chapter is about how that disappearance affects a different person. So it's really a short story collection in its own way. And, you know, Olive again, and even the original Olive Kittredge and uh, A Visit from the Goon Squad by Jennifer Egan. Those are all linked short story collections that were are called novels. And eventually I did notice, you know, wow, I really love these characters. I want to write another story about them. So eventually I did have a few stories that were interconnected, but it took me a very, very, very long time. I started putting the stories together. And I started realizing, oh, these characters who aren't quite working in this particular story aren't working because they're supposed to be the father and son from Daredevil. And when I rewrote the story from that perspective, you know, one of those stories, and it, and it just kept happening. So I'm curious for you how long the process was to write Once Removed. Nothing in the collection is from graduate school. And I finished graduate school in 2003. So most of the stories I started after 2003, my problem is because I'm such a slow writer, I will start something and put it away because I'll feel like I'm not a good enough writer yet to figure out how to finish it. 2003 till 2018, it won the award. So 15 years. Your collection was published through the University of Georgia Press after winning the very prestigious Flannery O'Connor Award for short fiction. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what that experience was like, both winning the award and publishing through a university press. Oh, winning the award was wonderful and shocking Um, because I had just about given up. I submitted, I believe I submitted to the Flannery O'Connor Award at the very last minute. And it's such a female-centric collection that even though Lee K. Abbott, who was the the, um, judge at the time, you know, they, they tend to have judges for long time periods. They don't have guest judges. And I figured, well, you know, this is such a female centric collection. Uh, you know, a man isn't going to be interested in this collection. So, you know, I have to get it out there. I'm going to do this one more time. And I forgot about it because I just thought it wasn't ready. So I'm driving along in the car. I had dropped my kid off somewhere and I got a text message that flashed across, you know, you get the little bubbles and it said, this is Lee K. Abbott. Did you not get my phone call? You've won the Flannery O'Connor award. So I pulled over. First thing I said was, did I enter that? Wait, did I enter it? Cause it had been you know, months before. What, what is he talking about? So I texted him back and I said, are you sure you have the right phone number? So yeah, I was shaking. I was so thrilled. And you know, UJ press puts out beautiful, beautiful books. I'm a native of Los Angeles. And one of the things that I loved in your book was your portrayal of the city in many of your stories. I'm curious about how the city came into full focus and how it acted as a backdrop to your stories. I will steal little bits and pieces from life all the time. So I'll write about like a lot of a lot of stories I write are set in different places in Los Angeles where I've been, I've fallen in love with or you know, places I don't like as much, whatever, but I love Los Angeles. I came here late. I came here in my twenties. I mean, not late, but I came here as an adult. Um, I grew up on the East coast. Um, but I fell in love with Los Angeles. I came to writing as a, uh, as a recovering lawyer. 
as many of us do. I feel like I got to experience the city best when I stopped practicing law and I started writing a lot and I just had more time to be out and about in the city. Being a writer involves a ton of rejection, as we know, but being a short fiction writer in particular really involves an exponentially higher amount of rejection. Um, Because before you even start sending your completed book out for publication, you're sending out individual stories to magazines or contests. And I'm curious how you handle the submissions process and and the rejection. Oh, rejection hurts. (laughs) It just does. It doesn't stop. I mean, I've, I've, even though I came to writing late, I am now quite a bit older and have been doing this a long time. And I actually got a couple of rejections from some residencies I applied for uh, just the other day. And, you know, I, 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 I try to tell myself, oh, this just rolls off my back and it's not a big deal. After I let myself kind of dwell in that a while, I have to say, okay, onward. I need that time And I need those rejections to allow me to go back to the story and say, okay, I've got some distance, time to make it better. I think it can be helpful for other writers and readers to hear about your own particular writing process. Can you tell us a little bit about what your daily process looks like? Well, (laughs) it depends on the day. Uh, When I'm really writing like I've I've figured out what my character is and I'm in full-blown writing mode. I will usually get up, go to the gym. Uh, now I have to take care of the puppy, but, you know, walk the dog and write, you know, and write for a few hours and get my time in. And then I'll leave my afternoons when my son is around and my husband's coming home. I'll leave that for, you know, teaching, like, you know, doing my teaching work or I also do private writing coaching, so doing that work, or I also, I have a lot of part-time jobs. I work for an organization, I'm a co-executive director of CineStory, which is a mentoring organization for screenwriters and TV writers, so I'll do that work. But if I'm really, really going, probably at the end of the day, I'm still writing. So because it's a bit of a longer show today, we are going to have just four books total that we're going to talk about. So Colette, why don't you start us off with your first pick? My first pick is Call Your Daughter Home by Deb Spira. And full disclosure, Deb is uh, a friend of mine who I met through a, a, a parenting group on Facebook. But this store, this book is just one of the best things I read last year. It's set in 1924, so pre-Depression South in Branchville, South Carolina, which is this uh, poverty-stricken tobacco town. You know, it's really struggling to stay alive. And um, it's told from three different first-person female points of view who are woven together. And the women are really separated by class and race. But their common bond is that each of them has lost their daughter or daughters, either in actuality or, you know, via estrangement or, you know, just sheer circumstances. You know, poverty is a circumstance that can separate families. And anyway, so you've got Gertrude who opens the book and the the opening line of the book is so great. Uh, It's easier to kill a man than a gator but it takes the same kind of weight. Gertrude is, she's from a chicken farming family. She's married to an abusive husband and she's fleeing him with her four daughters to try to build a better life for them. 
So she flees toward town where she's she wants to get a job as a seamstress. She's a very good seamstress. Um, and there's this place called the Sewing Circle where she wants to get a job. But before she can do that, she has to get away from her husband. And she winds up having to leave her daughters with her brother. Annie is the, you know, the upper class. She and her husband, Edwin, own most of the town. He is actually from South Carolina. She's a northerner who I believe came down to, to you know, marry uh, Edwin. She has been estranged from her own daughters for 15 years. And then finally, there's Retta, who works for Annie and Edwin. She is the daughter of slaves, uh, a slave family that Edwin's family owned. Now, she is. this is actually the one love story in the book that works. She and her husband, Odell, and they had a daughter who died when she was eight. And rather than tearing it apart, it brought them closer together. And that to me, that her story was the most beautiful part of the book. They're all strong women, which is part of the reason I love the book. My first pick is Call Your Daughter Home by Deb Spera. So you've rung a couple of my bells with this book, historical fiction for sure. People who listen to this podcast know that I have a special thing for historical fiction and of course the chicken farming family as I am myself a city chicken farmer. So my first pick is The Giant Baby by Lori Foose. She is the author of many, many books and some of the titles of hers that I have read include Blue Girl, which is about mothers who bake their secrets into moon pies that they feed to a silent blue girl. And Ex Uterus is my favorite book of hers, and it tells the story of Rita who, oopsie, misplaces her uterus somewhere in the mall. So I think uh, listeners can get a sense of what kind of writer she is. But this book that I'm going to talk about today, The Giant Baby, has been on my to-read list for a very long time. It's about a couple named Linda and Earl, and they've been married for a long time. They've never had kids, but they really bond over watching reruns of I Love Lucy, and they often find parallels to that program in their own lives. One day, Earl uh, finds baby toes, like actual baby toes. Um, And so naturally he decides to plant these toes in the ground in their garden and see what happens. Lo and behold, the toes act like seeds and begin to sprout a baby. But it is not just a regular size baby. It is a giant baby who has a lot of feelings and is constantly hungry. And Linda and Earl are definitely being tested and they're trying their best to figure out if they can even be parents to this giant baby. This book is part fairy tale, part speculative fiction, and the giant baby serves as an apt metaphor for what bringing a baby into the world actually feels like. It's technically a novella. It is around 100 pages. The writing is wonderful, it's funny, it's wry, and it's also really moving in parts. And I think fans of Helen Phillips and Helen DeWitt will enjoy this book. And again, that is The Giant Baby by Lori Foose. Colette, what do you have next for us? I have, this is actually a memoir because I am I am like you. I am an eclectic reader. I will read anything. And by the way, I want to read everything that author that you just talked about wrote. She sounds amazing. 
Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm an eclectic reader and this is a memoir and it's called the less people know about us, a mystery of betrayal, family secrets, and stolen identity. And it's by Axton Betts Hamilton. Okay. So she's, she's actually a well-known identity theft expert. Um, and it's her own family circumstances that led her down that path, um, and led her to write this memoir. And I found out about her on another podcast actually called Criminal. Axton had gone on this podcast once several years ago. And then when her book was coming out, she went on it again. And when I heard that she had written a book, I went right out and found it. And it's just fascinating. I don't want to give away a lot about it simply because I knew about what the book was about and what she ultimately discovers because I had listened to the podcast. If you're someone who doesn't like to know those things, I don't want to give it away. What happens is she grew up in small town, Indiana in the nineties. And during that time, I think when she was around 11, her parents' identities were stolen and their credit was absolutely ruined. So the police weren't much help. There was really no one to turn to about what they could do. Um, her mother got it into her head that, you know, someone was stealing their mail and that's how their identities got stolen. So she moved, you know, they, she, she moved them to a PO box so that they no longer had their, you know, their, their post office box on this little country road they lived on. And slowly but surely, as more and more things kept happening over the years, despite all their efforts to protect their identities, the family, including Axton, got very suspicious of outsiders, got suspicious of even family members because the mother was convinced that it had to be a family member who stole their identity. So they became very isolated. Finally, when Axton gets away from her family and goes to college, I believe maybe when she starts graduate school, but she gets her own apartment for the first time. And she discovers that her own identity had been stolen when she was a kid and her credit was ruined. And this set her on this path of starting to do research uh, in the area of identity theft because there was nothing done. You know, the effects of it on families, on individuals, on whoever it, hap you know, it happens to. So she is one of the foremost experts in the country and she becomes determined to figure out who has stolen her entire family's identity. And what she finds out practically destroys her little tiny family. And it's just fascinating. It's actually, it's, I believe there was a ghostwriter who's named, but it's beautifully written. And having heard her on different podcasts, the book is very much in her voice. It, it just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't put it down. My second pick is The Less People Know About Us, A Mystery of Betrayal, Family Secrets, and Stolen Identity, and it's by Axton Betts Hamilton. I am definitely going to read the book first and then listen to the podcast because I am one of those people for whom the discovery is best on the page. My next pick for today is also a memoir, um, and both of my picks this week are backlist. I'm trying to catch up on some reading. I just have so many lists of books, and if I keep reading the next best thing that's coming out, I am going to lose some great books from the past. So this book came out in 2011, and it is a memoir called The Chronology of Water by Lydia Yuknovich. 
I actually listened to the audiobook for this one. I don't do that very often, um, but I do spend a lot of time in my car living in Los Angeles. The last audiobook I listened to, I talked about on the show, and that was Michelle Obama's Becoming. But I really specifically like listening to memoirs on audiobook. In this case, it's not the author reading, but I feel like for these sorts of intimate books, hearing them read out loud just further adds to the intimacy. This is a memoir really at the heart of it. It's all about language told under the guise of stories about water. I am in such awe of how Yuknovich talks about women's bodies. It's just incredible. She covers gender and sexuality and family all through the lens of being a lifelong swimmer and an Olympic hopeful. She accepts a swimming scholarship, but she abruptly loses it to drug and alcohol abuse. And later she learns to numb her pain through promiscuity. Um, Then she eventually finds writing as a means of self-expression and healing. The writing is really in good conversation with work by Maggie Nelson and even Elaine Showalter, if you're familiar with her work. And it's one of those books that you're left thinking about for a very long time after you finish reading it. So again, that's another book. I can't say too many of the specifics because I don't want to ruin the reveal, but it is called The Chronology of Water by Lydia Yuknovich. So Colette, before we say goodbye, where can we find you on social media? I actually am on three platforms. I can't believe it. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Uh, And it's just Colette Sartor, all lowercase on Twitter and uh, Instagram. And I believe on my Facebook author page is Colette Sartor Author. And I will be sure and include links to all of those platforms in the show notes of this podcast. I always end the show by telling listeners what I'm currently reading. For me, that is the Penguin Book of Japanese Short Stories by too many authors to mention. And are you currently reading something you want to share? I have been reading. Oh, I love. And actually, I know you did this book. Um, Such a fun age. And that's part of the reason I started reading it because I heard about it on your podcast. Uh, by Kylie Reed. And I've also been reading No Visible Bruises by Rachel Louise uh, Snyder, uh, which I think is an important, important book. And that is all for this week. Everyone should go out and buy the short fiction collection Once Removed by Colette Sartor. Oh, thank you, Jennifer, for having me. This was a blast. As always, all of the books I talk about, any other links that we've mentioned are listed in the show notes section of the podcast, or you can visit booksaremypeople.com. And I hope everyone has a wonderfully bookish week. <laughs>